I don't take for granted the opportunities that I've been given. And with those opportunities, for me, comes great responsibility. Hello, Titans, and welcome back to Fram and Friends, a Cal State Fullerton podcast in partnership with Titan Radio. There have been many transformative academic leaders in Cal State Fullerton's history, but few have shined brighter or had a more lasting impact than today's guest. And we are so honored to welcome her back to campus. Here to introduce her and kick off this very special episode is our host and president, Fram Vergie. Hey, everyone. Uh, Good to see you virtually, kind of, uh, and uh, to have a chance today uh, to be with one of my favorite people ever, for sure. Uh, I remember when we first met uh, when you were provost at uh, Cal State Bakersfield. Um, we, uh, I met you in, uh, in the president's office uh, with Horace Mitchell, another mm-hmm. amazing guy, mm-hmm. um, and we had a, a great conversation, but it paled in comparison to the amazing conversation that we had at dinner that mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I Julie and I that. were there, and um, I fell in love, and I had <laughs> right, right from the start, and I knew um, you, know, you were amazing then, and then you were going to be an incredible leader. Uh, you are an amazing president, of course, of a wonderful university, the second best CSU <laughs> in the system. Now, you know uh, I can't let that stand. Of course not. President at Cal Poly Pomona. But before you were president at Cal Poly Pomona, you were the provost at Bakersfield. And before that, you were Titan. Uh, that's right. I have very uh, fond and warm memories of Cal State Fullerton. And in fact, Cal State Fullerton really launched me in higher education because I started out as a lecturer and uh, then got on a tenure track and just began to really take advantage of the opportunities that presented itself. And so I have a, a very fond and deep regard for Cal State Fullerton. And by the way, I want to commend you on your leadership as well as I read the article in the Orange County Business Journal and all of the great things that are happening here at Cal State Fullerton. I'm not surprised at all. And uh, I feel a certain sense of connectedness to the uh, the success of this uh, of this great university. So thank you for having me today. Well, you should feel that connectedness. You know, uh, you know the the traditional uh, saying is once a titan, always a titan. Mm-hmm. And so you are always a titan mm-hmm. as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. But um, like other leaders that we've had on this campus, we can see your fingerprints mm-hmm. everywhere and mm-hmm. some of your toe prints as well. <laughs> um, but my sense is uh, uh, you, that while you've had, had lots of leadership roles at the CSU, uh, you, uh, uh, and the CSU helped to create right. you as a leader, right. uh, as an institution, um, it's really much more than that for you, Soraya. Mm-hmm. It's um, where you come from. Uh, uh, what you and I, we're of, we're of a generation, we call it our upbringing, right? right? It's our upbringing and our development uh, in, in life and our early years that formed us into the leaders that we are mm-hmm. and the people that we are. So our listeners, I know your story, mm-hmm. but our listeners don't know um, – they, most of them are first generation students. You know, we're about 60% first gen, about uh, 65% Pell eligible students. Um, you know, probably about 75% students from underserved communities. Um, um, they are, uh, many of our students are just like 
we were mm -hmm. um, from humble beginnings, I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, humble means unvarnished beginnings, maybe we call it. Um, can you share with, uh, with our listeners uh, your path to higher education, um, uh, where, how it started? Uh, I know you grew up in the South. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that led you to here. Well, I, uh, first of all, I, um, I thank you for that question because, you know, sometimes you're so busy with life that you need those reflective moments that reinvigorates you, that really, um, confirms, uh, uh, that you're on the path you're supposed to be on. And so you're right. I grew up in, um, uh, Goldsboro, North Carolina. I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina. My father died when I was four, and he had uh, three sons that were much older than I was, and and his sons were, um, and their wives were uh, college educated. Um, and then on my mother's side, um, uh, her family, uh, we were farmers, and so my mother grew up on the farm, and so I had, I straddled those worlds of um, having opportunities on the one hand, but being grounded and really appreciating um, what the struggle is all about. And I think the thing that um, most people don't really understand or appreciate if you haven't lived in that era was that it was deeply segregated. I grew up um, in a community where you had, while you didn't have physical boundaries, you had economic, you had um, uh, systemic boundaries that said you you deserve or you do not deserve. And what I look, what I reflect on so much is the support and the love of not only my family, but the community. I had a community, uh, my stepfather, my mother, uh, my father died, I said, when I was four, he was a Southern Baptist minister, and somehow or another, my mother liked Southern Baptist ministers, so she married another <laughs> one, and he was um, a very instrumental in integrating the community, but that was further along in my development, but growing up. Um, there were just such visual signs that say you don't matter. You couldn't. There were separate water fountains. There were just um, separate um, uh, institutional um, uh, statues that said um, you can or you cannot. And so what that brought to me, and it was clearly with my parents and with my teachers, a sense that we see something in you and you're not going to allow those systemic barriers to not um, have your talents, your who you are to flourish. And I, I'm recalling one particular incident or two particular incidences and I'll just share very briefly. I was about five years old, and my mother and I um, went into the Woolworths store, which is equivalent to, you know, Woolworths is kind of a 
all-encompassing shopping um, uh, store. And there was the target a, of our day. That's right, or the Walmart of <laughs> yeah, our day. Yeah. And there was a little girl sitting, little white girl sitting at the counter eating a hot dog. And I rushed to sit beside her because I wanted a hot dog. And I remember my mother's face of fear and grabbing me off the stool. And it was at that moment that I, I appreciated that parents had to decide, do I tell you the bold truth or do I try to protect your sense of self-worth and self-esteem? So at five years old, my mother said, um, I'll fix you a hot dog when you get home because it's not, you shouldn't be eating in public. So she didn't ascribe the fact that you are black and you can't have access to that. She ascribed the sense of what was proper. And the same thing when I got on the bus to visit my grandmother, and I always I rushed ahead to sit on the front row. And my mother again said, we have food and games and books, and we're going to sit in the back of the bus because we don't want to disturb the driver. And so I think about the fact that too often parents have to find ways to allow that sense of of oneness, of of achievement. They have to find ways to still encourage, to still motivate, to still invest in and know that you can against a system that says you're not worthy. And so that left me in my hometown um, a very a, a, a much a sense of self, but also a sense of community. And I carried that with me because I know that it was a community. It was the people who cared for me, who loved me, who, um, you know, my as I said, my my stepfather was president of the of the church and and very much a community leader, and they just had high expectations for me. And I'll, my last uh, sharing um, when I left for. Lincoln University, which is the oldest historically black college uh, in the country. When I left for Lincoln, one of the elders of the church, she was probably late 80s, early 90s, and she came to me and she put $5 in my hand and she said, Suge, you're going to be able to make it out, but don't ever forget that you got to bring everybody else along with you. And it is your responsibility to let them stand on your shoulders. And so that's what higher education for me is about. It's about recognizing that I have options and opportunities now. And the, my, my, my greatest responsibility is to try to keep that door open for others so that they can see their greatness. They can see their their opportunities to achieve and grow. And and it was planted early on in my um, 
in my growing up in that very segregated uh, system uh, uh, that said you don't belong in the community saying you will belong, you can belong, and we're going to support you. And I translate that to my leadership. Um, so I see I see in others sometimes what they can't see because people saw in me what I didn't see. Yeah. Yeah. So I will tell you, Soraya, um, growing up in California, mm-hmm. it's, a diff- it's a world away mm-hmm. in so many ways mm-hmm. from that. Um, and I had read about such things. Mm-hmm. I had um, talked to my parents about such things because they experienced some of those things in different ways. But it it really wasn't until our dinner in Bakersfield when you told me both of those stories mm-hmm. that I met someone who actually had lived it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made such an impact on me. So don't ever stop telling that story. Yeah. Well, and you know, I... I don't take for granted the opportunities that I've been given. And with those opportunities, for me, comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. My grandmother, who was quite, um, again, she completed uh, the sixth grade, and she was quite a leader in the community. And I remember, and we were so fearful because when the Voting Rights Act passed, and she was, you know, up there in age, um, she went door to door to get the older folks to say, we finally can vote. No, you have to. And you have to. Mm-hmm. And so that, and and she did it under threats. I mean, we, we had to make sure the taxes were paid on the farm. We had to, you know, we were, we were fearful of her, um, uh, of her personhood of being, um, you know, abused or threatened. And so or just erased. it was, yeah. And so that was, um, so I, I have the benefit of those, um, those strong-willed people who I understand what they had to deal with, and I cannot sit on the side and not uh, do my part. And, uh, and their, their struggles are uh, very much still a part of me, very deeply rooted. Yeah, we all say we stand on the shoulders. You really, you know exactly the shoulders you're standing on. Yeah. Yeah, and we, you know, our challenge, and you're doing this, I'm trying to do this in terms of us both having broad shoulders so that we can have as many stand on there as we can. <laughs> yeah, because um, people, you know, they need to see that they can. And, and I think our goal in educating is to put a mirror up and so that the students can see in themselves what we see in them. Because it's once you see it that you feel like, I'll take that chance. I'll, I'll go on that job interview. I'll take that class. I'll do what, 
you think I can do, but I'm not sure I can. And so I think that's that for me is what I love about being in education. So you chose a path of academia. Mm-hmm. You went off to Lincoln mm-hmm. and then Bryn Mawr? Bryn Mawr. And in fact, at Lincoln, um, as I reflect more and more about my experience at Lincoln, it is historically black college university, and I, I was there during a time, and I came into an environment where it was it was broadly educated, and we we not only were taught the history of this country, but we were taught African American history, and so it it it. It intersected, but it also laid side by side. And so that was a grounding for me. But Lincoln was such a turning point for me in my educational development. And there was one professor particularly, a Dr. Carter, and she taught a research class. And we were asked to find... Um, prestigious journals in sociology and find articles that were um, trying to justify the inferiority of blacks. And I came across this article and the the relationship that was being drawn is because you don't have, at that point, and this was like in the 50s, black Olympic swimmers, because there was some, you know, this is during that period where, you know, they tried to look at brain size and all of the kinds of physical attributes of African Americans to justify the racism, the bigotry, and so forth. So this particular article, again, it was in the 40s or 50s, was saying that since you don't have black Olympic swimmers, it's a therefore um, there are inherently um, unequal. They're, They're inferior. Now, what Dr. Carter did was she said, let's take the conclusion you don't have black Olympic swimmers. And let's hypothesize other variables, other factors. And that was the most eye-opening assignment for me. Because having grown up in Goldsboro, North Carolina, there was a swimming pool, but but I couldn't swim there because I was black. The swimming pool was for whites only. And there wasn't a swimming pool in the black community. So the only place I could swim would have been Noose River, which my mother was not going to let me swim in. So I didn't learn to swim, actually, until my 40s. But what that assignment said is you may see, you may find a conclusion, but let's identify other variables that can contribute to that outcome, and that led me to um, deciding to um, really pursue social research policy and planning because it is, 
even in the selection of the variables that bias can enter, and then you try to measure and prove certain things. And so I, um, and it was actually Dr. Carter who said, you need to go to graduate school. Now, I didn't know what graduate school was. I knew you're supposed to get a college degree. That was the expectation of my family. So I applied, and um, I got accepted to several. I remember I was accepted to Brandeis, but Brandeis uh, was a five-year program because it was a doctoral program only. Well, I couldn't see next week. So five (laughs) years, if I dropped out for some reason and I didn't have, you know, I I had a, I was, couldn't depend upon my mother. By this time, my stepfather had passed and I couldn't really depend upon my mother to economically. So I worked uh, summers, I worked throughout college and I was accepted at Bryn Mawr. And I decided, well, now that's a two-year program and that makes sense. So I went to Bryn Mawr, got my master's, and then graduated and was working in New York. And about two or three years later, the dean called me from Bryn Mawr and said, while you were here getting your master's, you'd requested and we uh, gave you permission to take doctoral courses. Now, I took the doctoral courses because I liked the subject matter. It was not to get a doctorate. He said, you have several courses, and we're going to give you a full ride to come back, and you only need a year's coursework because you've got all these doctoral courses that you've taken during the two years. So that's where I see the importance of faculty and staff because I would not have pursued that. I wouldn't have thought about graduate school, but again, she saw something in me. They were looking for your success. That they, yeah. you've got to keep going. And so that's where, you know, we both are on that path of helping to keep keep students looking at the horizon and seeing possibilities. So then you came to California. Came to California because Ronnie, my husband, we just uh, celebrated 42 years of marriage. We used to go together in high school, and then uh, we went our separate ways, and my mother always loved Ronnie. As got, she should. As, as she, she should. should. And we got back together, and Ronnie, in fact, we graduated within one day of each other. He was in the Marine Corps um, and had taken time out. Um, they'd given him permission to finish his MBA at Wharton, and then I was finishing my doctorate at Bryn Mawr, and then he was now coming back on to active duty status, and so we were then assigned to come to Tustin, the helicopter base. And you can imagine growing up in North Carolina, and then, you know, we were in Philadelphia and, and lived in New York. And coming to Orange County in 1981, um, I was like, well, in fact, even before I came, he had come out and he was trying to find housing. And so he was talking about how expensive it was. And I said, well, let's find a trailer, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because he had had a trailer when he was stationed in Jacksonville, North Carolina. I said, well, let's find a trailer. He said... 
it's expensive to have a trailer on a plot of land in California. In any event, we did find a place in Tustin, and I started at Cal State Fullerton, and it was, um, Orange County was so, it was something that I never could have imagined in terms of the, um, first of all, just the, the lure of California, but there were two sides of Orange County, and I dabbled in one side but knew very well the other side, and so you straddled. And I can remember when I first moved into our place in, um, in Lake Forest, um, you know, there were uh, racial slurs as I was jogging uh, thrown at me. Um, the you know, people who um, I, I choose to believe that there were unintentional um, comments. They didn't understand what they were saying, the implications of what they were saying. And and so, and, and at Cal State Fullerton, I came and I used to get, conf- people confused me with the president at the time, Jewel Plummer, Jewel Plummer Cobb. Cobb. So I kept a picture of her. So when I was, said, oh, Dr. Cobb, I'd take the picture out and say, this is Dr. Cobb and I'm Dr. Coley. And um, I had students who, um, you know, in fact, I remember the first day, uh, the class said were shocked when I walked in and they said well we've never had a black professor before and I said well you know one of the things that we're going to talk about is how do you operationalize variables this was a um, research class and I said so if I wanted to measure for example deprivation I might ask, how many of you have never had a black professor? And so if you raised your hand, I'd say, you've been deprived. (laughs) And I came to really enjoy the class, but it it was a class where you could righteously get angry. And I... I recognize that these individuals would be in administrative roles, would be in leadership roles, and to the extent that I could help them um, put the mirror up and see how they viewed the world, which wasn't, which was in a context that was not inclusive, wasn't a context of valuing diversity, and so I, I saw that as part of of the responsibilities. And that's what faculty of color oftentimes talk about, that additional work that you don't get paid for, but it is the work, it is the heaviness that just comes with trying to educate broadly. It's always in front of you. It's always in front of you, yeah. So, we could talk about this all day. Mm -hmm. Skip to today. Mm Mm-hmm. You're a university president. Isn't that something? You're a university <laughs> president of an amazing university, mm-hmm. Cal Poly Pomona. It is an amazing place. Yeah. What's the best part 
about being a university president? I think it's it's reflecting on the impact that the faculty and staff have on the short and long-term success of students, how they contribute to to that. You know, every commencement before I go down to uh, join the processional, I have a a moment of prayer and and one of thanksgiving, and it is to uh, be thankful that I get to that I have the opportunity, the privilege to be a part of these wonderful students' lives and the privilege to have the faculty and staff who care. They care about the students. Sometimes they don't necessarily know how it it best gets displayed. But overall, there is a sense of of, uh, wanting to make an impact. And so when I see these students, and and I think the thing that I am very um, intentional about is that I engage with students um, in I they come to me in different ways. I may know their parents, or I may the other week I met a student in Trader Joe's as Cal Poly Pomona student, and so I um, I uh, get their information and I ask them, you know what's happening, how things that we can help you with. And so it's being engaging. It's not being administrative. It, you, you, I would shrivel up if they kept me away from students. I would shrivel up if, because I have to, it, it's in many ways the charger. And so I have to have a sense, and, and it's, it's across the board. And so it was wonderful to have the students return. I mean, I rode around in my little Bronco one, and uh, there, there's also something that I do. If the student has another campus's T-shirt on, oh, that's against the rules. And I have in the back of my Bronco sweatshirts and T-shirts, and so I'll stop. And say, excuse me, um, do you know that you're violating a policy? And they look at me. And so I said, what size do you wear? You can't wear another. In fact, the other day, there was a student who had a USC sweatshirt on. And she was talking to her mother on the phone. And I said, I introduced myself to her mother. And I said, you know, your daughter, we're so glad to have her here. But she's violating a rule here, and her mother gets, what did she do? I said, she's got a USC T-shirt on. Her mother said, she shouldn't be doing that. I said, you're absolutely right, Mom. And so I didn't have them in my Bronco one, but she did come. I said, I want you to come to my office, and we're going to outfit you with the proper T-shirt. It's those fun things, and you do that, your wife does that, Ronnie is very involved with the Veterans Center, and it is, you, you have to, for me, it is the the thing that that's motivating, you know, that gets you up in the morning and when you feel like, you know, and we have tough challenges, but we, we work through it because 
we know the impact that we, uh, you know, that we have. Yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing is so much of our world is about the here and now mm-hmm. and about what have you done for me lately mm-hmm. and what can I get and what can who can I be and what can I drive and where can I live and how can right. I look. Right. And the thing about education and about faculty and staff mm-hmm. is they think, I don't think they stop to think as we do because this is our job. Right. They think they're pouring into the students. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is pouring into the future. Yeah. They're pouring into tomorrow. They're yeah. making this world a better place. Right. And right. they are that is the least selfish thing mm-hmm. that you could do as a person. Right. And yet the most fulfilling thing you could do. Yeah, I've always felt that um, serving is the most is the greatest gift. Mm that I can have. And I think, um, you know, when Martin Luther King talks about um, the long arc of the moral universe, and I and I sometimes get, does it have to be so long? Yeah. Can we but bend it a little quicker? That's right. Mm-hmm. But I know that we're part of that bending towards justice. We're part of that bending towards making our society, our communities better. And so it is through it is through serving. It is through having something grander than yourself. And and that's that's what you know, what motivates um, what motivates me. Okay, so that's the best part mm-hmm. about being a president is being a part of that mm-hmm. building of the future. Mm-hmm. What's the hardest part? What's the worst part? I think the, the hardest part is, because I think presidents have to be both strategic and operational. And I think the strategic of, re- of leaping out and seeing that there are storms on the horizon, looking around and the corner. how do you, how do you position? How do you make sure that you um, try to? You, we may have to go through that storm, and there's going to be some turbulence. But how do you do everything you can to lessen the impact on what is fundamentally? The core of the of the university, I I um, I probably worry too much, and I worry about um, you know whether it's it's the budget that uh, that um, uh, that can change at any year, or whether or, or not that's exactly right, <laughs> or what's happened to you know a lot of our faculty and staff were significantly impacted by the pandemic and you you know it you want to you want to be there emotionally and and you also have to you're also trying to make sure that the institution stays on track that you understand what the implications of certain things will be on students and so how do you keep all of that um, connect it in a way that there's still forward movement. Mm-hmm. And I think that's 
those are the things that I that are the challenges. But I I think you the gift is that there's greater wonderment and and excitement than there is the obstacles and the mountains that you have to climb. And as long as it's in that, you know, it's in that proportion, then, you know, as my mother said, who promised you a rose garden? <laughs> it ain't going to be easy. It's and worth so it's worth it. Yeah. So I know we've both experienced you can be a lightning rod at your campus also for criticism and for uh, change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's often not easy as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're right. As long as you keep in perspective the long game, right. of what you're doing. It is also, from my perspective, a 24-7, all-consuming job. It is 24-7. It is. And it is amazing. And I'm sure, you know, you probably get calls at night. um, But I remember one of my calls was like 11 o'clock at night. I might have been, I think it was my first year as president. So the chief calls me and said, Midge has passed. Now, I am trying to rack my head. Who is Midge? Who is is Midge? Midge? (laughs) I'm supposed to know Midge. And so I'm trying to keep him. I said, well, has she been sick? I'm trying to get. (laughs) And uh, he said, yeah, I think she'd been a little sick. And he said, well, I'm calling you um, because we need to get – some pins. I said, some pins? He said, yes, we're going to have to, um, we're going to have to create some pins to put the sheep in. Mm-hmm. So it turns out Midge was the llama. <laughs> so I said, please do what you need to do. Oh, so yeah. I then the next day, I said, okay, you got to get a llama. And, you know, we have a college of ag, and so we have horses and cows and and one llama. So I called one of the um, alums, and I said, Butch, I need a llama. He said, well, I can get you eight. I said, I don't need eight. I just need one. So I put the college of ag faculty in touch with Butch to try to check this out. And so the, the one of the faculty members came back to me and said, uh, President Coley, uh, we can't use those llamas. I said, why not? He said, those are kind llamas. We need a mean llama. <laughs> I said, where do you get a mean llama? Just do what you need to do. So we got a mean llama. The llama is, and they named him internationally. Names came in, so they named him Poncho. So it turns out that with the sheep, the llama protects them from the coyotes. It's And so you'll see, like, in the evenings, the sheep are all huddled around Poncho. And so when you think about the range of things, that you know. That might come your way. That might come mm-hmm. way. I was on full watch. Uh, we have Arabian horses. And the students called me up my first year and said, President Coley, will you— 
um, come and be on Fall Watch. I said, okay. I said, well, we're going to stay in the stables. Do you want to stay with us? I love you dearly, but I'm not staying in the stables. I'm five minutes away. So, of course, they the births always seem to occur early in the morning. So they called me like 1.30. I rushed down, and Blake was just being born. And so the students are there, and they're wiping, you know, the fold. And I said, don't you want to wipe? Well, of course I want to wipe, so I'm wiping. And then it takes forever. I, again, I learned so much from the, from the students from these programs uh, it takes the the foal can't nurse until it can stand, and it took forever, you know, trying to stand. Finally, Blake was able to stand, and then the sack in which he's in has to naturally eject. So the students are there as it's natural ejecting. So once it ejects, they take the sack and they fill it with water because they need to make sure that none of the pieces are in the mother. And they said, don't you want to touch the sack? Of course I want to touch the sack. So now Blake is like my horse, and it is, it's just the range of things. And so that offsets the, you know, some of the challenges. So when I was, when Ronnie and I were there by ourselves on the campus, except for, you know, the groundskeepers and some of the facilities folks, you know, I walked almost daily, just looking at the animals and just, Kind saying of hi being, to Blake and the mean saying llama. Saying hi to Blake and Pancho would look at me like these sheep are worrying me to death. So, you know, you have those things that balance the, you know, whether it's the kind of, um, you know, your athletic program, your arts program. You have those things that really give you a balance of, of enjoyment with also the challenges. So that's a great segue to the next question, which is, you're right, because it's a 24-7 job, you have to find that balance. You have mm -hmm. to find those uh, other interests. I know um, you are also a, an eternally inquisitive person. Mm -hmm. You're always look, looking to learn. And uh, I'm wondering what your other passions and interests are besides being president. You know, what do you love? Do you love literature? Do you love music? Mm -hmm. Do you love theater, opera, jazz? I love all of that. You know, as I was thinking about, uh, and again, I appreciated what the exposure that Lincoln provided me. I mean, as I said, I love chamber music. I didn't, I didn't know what chamber music was. I fine art. I mean, I studied abroad, Lincoln. And then at the same time, you know, I'm in the 60s and 70s in terms of, uh, you know, the James Brown and the, and the Spinners and the Whispers. And so um, it, it is being open to different art, art forms, and seeing how it impacts you, and you know, do you how do you connect with it? Um, but I don't. I think the thing that I I recognize, and I'm certainly not proud of it, is I don't. I don't fully relax. You know, I don't. Um, I I'm. It is oftentimes I do meditate. Um, you know, ideally I have to read something in the morning that 
that's spiritual that that's renewing um my my faith my my sense of of purpose um but i uh i i enjoy various activities like you know friday night my husband and i'll go over to a basketball game and i enjoy being there or i'll go you know there's a young woman that i'm um uh that i'm uh, kind of keeping tabs on and she's a hammer thrower, and I'd never seen hammer throwing. And so I go out to the meet and, and see that. Um, but I'm always recognizing that, uh, you know, that 11 o'clock call at night or, okay, you, be you ready. know, that's right, or the strategic plan. Because I think presidents have to be, as I said, both strategic. you got, it's like flying ahead and and being able to look at the, the weather forecast, and at the same time, being rooted in the here and now, the tactical, and so that you can can help people kind of see up ahead, and at the same time, not become fearful, because you can have that fear, and everybody just hunkers down, but you've got to be hopeful. You've got to be able, you know, one of the things I said at my uh, first my first speech to the campus, um, I said, it's like, because I came at the tail end of the recession, and the, that recession was 10 years, and it was deep. And I said, you know, it's, it's like we've been in a cave, and now we're emerging from this cave of the recession. Now, some people are going to want to stay in the cave because it's safe, it feels like I, I, I can manipulate, I know this. Sounds like virtual teaching and learning. Yeah, but I'm going to need to, we gotta go out of this cave. And I said, and we have different paths, and we got that mountain we've gotta climb. Now, some of us are going to need to hold us, one another up. Uh, others are gonna to wanna to run ahead. We gotta have scouts. But we also have to climb as a community. And it is being making sure that everyone has that same sense of direction that we're going to that mountaintop. And that's a challenge for presidents, I think, because it, it sometimes that mountaintop is is foggy. You can't see it. And then you have something like a pandemic that comes into play and it creates fear, anxiety. It's like we're on our own and how do I navigate this? And so those are the those are the things that don't allow me to fully relax. I I'm and but I do like to read. I like to listen to music. What's your favorite book? Um I thought about that. I think, uh, well, there's not just one book. I uh, There's uh, Cashman, uh, Leadership from the Inside Out. There's um, the guy who was at Saddleback, uh, A Purposeful Life. Rick Warren. Yeah, Rick Warren. Purpose-driven life. Yeah, mm. and um, Maya Angelou, I know why the Kurt, uh, um, the cage bird sings because one of my favorite poems is "And Still I Rise," because it is you can uh, do all of these things 
and you can be hurtful, you can be um, uh, f- foreboding, but and still I rise. And is that that has been a kind of a centerpiece for my uh, my life. And so I read, I'll read that poem probably once a month because sometimes you, and particularly what's happening in our society today, you gotta, you, you cannot um, give up. You cannot um, feel, well, why bother? It's our youth, our generations in the future require and deserve that we bother, that we find ways to still navigate these uh, uncertain waters because even in the midst of all of this and still I rise. So absolutely, you know, you and I are both of of an age where um, we've been living in a racialized America for a long time. Mm Um, and we've seen eruptions and sublimations and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it's quiet, sometimes it's not so quiet. Mm-hmm. But uh, that unspoken stigma is always there. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of like a wound mm-hmm. for our community and for our, for our country. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the past two, three years, we've seen those eruptions more acutely. Mm-hmm. Um, racialized incidents, issues of a lack of discourse and demagoguery and mm-hmm. uh, searching for dialogue and discussion is hard to find. Right. Um, and uh, what, I, what I see that is an, as, a, as an opening mm-hmm. for fundamental foundational change mm-hmm. that has to, make, has to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, it's sort of at once painful and hopeful Right. Um, so I'm wondering how you, um, as a strong black woman mm-hmm. in a position of power um, at a major university in the nation, um, do you see this as a watershed moment or just another bump in the road? And what can we be doing? What What should our students that are listening to this, our faculty, our staff from both our campuses right. that are listening to this, what should we be doing how should we be hopeful? Should we be discouraged? Maybe it's both. What are your thoughts? I think, you know, I've lived long enough to having gone through the um, the 60s and the, um, um, you know, when the civil rights legislation and with the demonstrations and the sit-ins and, and we thought that, okay, this piece of legislation, this is what we've been waiting for. And we're going to get court rulings, and this is what we've been waiting for. And we get that, and then it feels like there's a calm. But there is still not a fundamental reckoning in our beloved country of what, how, how much we want to move towards those ideals and where the breaks are and where the, 
where the uh, obstacles are to doing that. And I think we're, we're at a point now where we're in such corners, and at some point there's got to be um, – we have to find the mutual benefit. And 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 we we haven't found that it's a sense of I have to be here and you have to be there. It's not that we can coexist or that we can become connected in in the common um, advancement of this country because we all add something. We all add a positive. We contribute positively to this country. And so I, I understand the, the, you know, there are those that are certainly on various um, kind of in their, in the corners. And then there are those in the middle. They don't know which way to turn. What should I? How should I? And and what happens is we promote fear. We promote this, you need to fear someone that looks like me. You need to fear. You don't need to sit down and talk to them. You need to fear them. And I think that higher education has an opportunity to um, teach um to teach the what those values stand for, how would it be operationalized as a country if we took the what we see as our um, the civil rights acts or what we see as our constitution? If we took all of that and we just sat into a room and said, "Now, how would we construct a country that would look that would that would." Reflect this accurately. Reflect who we think we are. Exactly, and and that that building that needs to be. I think people from diverse backgrounds, gender identities needs to be the whole of the country. How would you construct it? And let's look at that compared to what we do have now. And why do we why do we see those those splits? And but I don't think I think people want to be held harmless. But just by virtue of you know there, there's this this comment oftentimes here. Well, you just need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And what I say to people is, someone gave you boots and someone gave you a strap. So don't think you were born. With that boot and strap, someone gave those to you. So this sense of self-sufficiency, or I did it on my own. Someone said yes at some point in your life, and so I think we've we cannot. We've always stayed in our corners, and then there's something that brings us together, and then we go back into our corners. And I think that what we have to do is to be able to stay in the center as tough as it is as hard as it is stay in the center those that really and i choose to to want to believe 
that there are so many people who see this, who want to get there, but they don't know how. There's not the path. And I think that's part of what we we can do in higher education is provide those spaces. I think higher education has to provide a, whole, a, a, a reckoning. Yeah. We have to realize and remember who we really are, right. not who we aspire to be. Then right. that doesn't change what we aspire to do, right. but we have to understand the reality right. of the situation before we can begin to change it. And we have to understand that this is not a zero-sum game. That's that right. If, if, I, if, if you are given opportunity, that doesn't take anything away from me. This is not a, uh, a pie that has to be sliced differently. Right. We can make the pie bigger. Right. And, and we have this sense that we don't want people who look like me to be angry. You know, and I've never understood this. It's like, well, yes, yeah, we can sit down, but, you know, I, I don't want you angry at me. Well, I'm bringing 200 years of oppression in my experience. And so recognize my anger. Listen to my anger. And then... Don't don't try to quash that because that just makes me angrier. <laughs> Listen and understand, you know, because people will say, "Well, I I didn't do that." You're absolutely right. You may not have X, Y, and Z, but what we're trying to also have you understand is that you're the beneficiaries of that system. Yeah, we were talking about standing on shoulders. Right. If you're standing on the shoulders of inequality, then you are perpetuating that inequality. Right. So it it is that. So you may not as an individual, but that's why I think we all have the opportunity and the responsibility to learn from one another, to understand. When I think about, you know, there used to be a lot of uh, discussions when I was in the um, in the 60s and so forth around the treatment of white ethnic groups. And then that shifted. There was this kind of integration of white ethnics. And so what so so what has happened over time is that, you know, I remember, one of my first classes at Lincoln that talked about the melting pot. And I remember saying to my teacher, well, why do I want to melt? Why can't you look like you and you look like you and I look like me? Why do you need us to melt? Can all be in the soup together. Let us be individual, but not ascribe some negative image to that individuality. And so I think that that's where we have. So it's not about melting. I mean, we've had these cycles of the way we're going to, you know, engage. Let's just fundamentally say we're all a part of this and we all are are responsible going forward for our common welfare, for our collective welfare. So are you hopeful? 
I have to stay hopeful. As and and I and I don't want to be naive. Um, but when I look back at and I and I read the history, one of my favorite, uh, in addition to my my wonderful husband, when I think about people that I just um, am so um, uh, that, that are kind of like my sh- heroes and sheroes. Uh, in addition to my husband, because he came from an environment, you know, like I did, and then he was among the few uh, blacks in the Marine Corps at a time, and he went through a lot there. Um, but Harriet Tubman, because she, as she escaped slavery, she could have said to herself, well, I'm going north and I'm going to try to make do. But she repeatedly went back to bring others up. And so I have to, I cannot uh, not be hopeful. I have to be hopeful. And if somehow or another is a mirage or somehow or another, well, then just let me stay in my, you know, non-real state because hope is when you are motivated to take action. If you feel like, well, there's nothing I can do, then you don't even necessarily seek out what could be right before you. And so Harriet Tubman's, uh, journey over and over again. And this is when I talk about service, about the essential, the, the, the sense of it is, it is bigger than one person. It is, it is about a, the, the demonstration of the humanity towards one another. And so I, I have to stay hopeful. I, and, and now, you know, I didn't, understand or appreciate this. I think about the worst I thought about growing up in terms of climate was, you know, there was Smokey the Bear. So don't throw cigarettes out and, you know, don't have forest fires. Well, now that's a whole nother level. Existential threat to us as a people generally. Exactly. Nothing to galvanize people better than a common threat. And it is, you know, it's not like, well, um, okay, air quality, you go over there and don't bother me over here. The climate is like, okay, I've been giving y'all enough time to think about this. And so guess what? You pay me now or you pay me later, but you're going to pay. And so that's where I think our young people are getting. And I think that's going to bring young people across classes, across races, across you know, um, uh, genders, it's going to create a connectedness that us older people don't, you know, don't necessarily get or understand. And so I have to stay hopeful for the, the future generations. I just hope that we, we can turn over to them something that is, is, is not so destroyed in terms of our relations with one another and and the earth and what's what's happening. Well, I know we are 
both people of faith. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing that keeps me the most hopeful is that there's a plan somewhere. I don't know what the heck it is, but right. um, exposing the foundations so that they can be rebuilt is important, and, and, but also creating the tools and the uh, supplies and the brain power and the heart mm-hmm. and the community through higher ed. That's what we do so that you're right. As long as we can hand it over, not too compromised, yeah, uh, it can build. Yeah. I'm excited about our young people. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, when I, you know, I contrasted, and I think you've all seen that the um, the Martin Luther King, the what, the walk over the Pettus Bridge, and then I contrasted the last year the marches of the young people in D.C., and it was so diverse. It was so, you know, I just I wanted to cry because the, the and there were some um, other folks in the marches of Martin Luther King, but by and large, there, it was very few. And then the contrast. So I have to stay hopeful. I have to see that our young people are going to um, get it right. I have to be, um, I want to believe. We have to that, believe, man, we'll go home. Yeah, that yeah. they will be the ones that will um, say, you know, Y'all have just screwed it up for us. <laughs> so let us just now move forward. And 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 to be able to hand off uh something that I that I hope they can value history, because we never want to throw away history, but that they can also feel a part of shaping the the path path forward. And that's and so this is a, it's important that we promote that kind of independent thinking and problem solving and looking at things in ways that require teams that that require that the sum of the you know the the the, the sum is greater than these individual pieces and and so i'm i choose to be hopeful well you know when i thought about who i wanted to have on my podcast <laughs> and i thought i want my friend Soraya on here i knew what would happen mm-hmm. i would write out like eight pages of stuff <laughs> and we get through a page and a half i could do this with you mm-hmm. forever well, i enjoyed it yeah. it really and i i'm I'm so impressed that you're doing this because we're you're finding you're giving the Fullerton community and others beyond uh, a timeout because we're so hurried and we're so we're doing we're doing and you're giving um, the listeners a time to think about it and 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 to ask questions and to be reflective. And that's, you know, in many ways, you are, um, you know, you're the president professor 
because you are teaching in a in, a, in another way, and it's a broader community. Um, because I'm sure you know it's not only the the students but the faculty and staff and others. So you are, um, and I really value and appreciate uh, what you're trying to do here at. Um, you know, my home base, because um, I wouldn't be in a presidency, except I I remember Jewel Plummer Cobb and Mary Kay Tetro. Mary Kay was a provost, and Jewel Plummer Cobb um, you know, was president here at Fullerton. And I was pretty active, and I never wanted to go into administration. Um, <laughs> never. In fact, I didn't want to be department chair, and, and I wanted to take a two-year difference in pay leave to go back with Ronnie in D.C. for his last three years of, of uh, being stationed at headquarters, Marine Corps. And so the department said, well, we'll support your taking a two-year difference in pay leave. And the dean said, we'll support that, but you got to come back and be department chair. And I was like, now, do I've, I want to be with my husband, but I don't want to be department chair. Well, I think they were probably sorry that they ever made me department <laughs> chair because we got in there and we, we mixed things mixed up. It up. Yeah. And then um, Mary Kay Detroit came in as dean, and um, and I was on a strategic planning council, and then she became provost, and I became an administrative fellow. So I was there sitting with the dean's council and so forth. And I can remember Jewel Cobb saying, you know, one day you're going to be a university president. I said, absolutely not. I am never going to do that. And same thing with Mary Kay. And so I was here for 20 years. I was dean and then went to, um, for two years, I was at another private not-for-profit and then went to Bakersfield for 10 years. And I just had a wonderful president with Horace Mitchell, and he, too, saw something in me. And this is where I say to people, there isn't, um, you know, sometimes you don't see ahead. You don't, because what I was thinking when she said, you're going to be university president, I'm seeing her at the pinnacle of her success, and I'm seeing a big gap between her and me. But you allow people who see those things in you to guide you, to help mentor you. And so I've been blessed to have those folks who, just like Dr. Carter, you need to go to graduate school. You need to, and Horace kept insisting, you know, you need to um, apply for your presidency. I said, Horace, I'm too busy. I got too much work to do. I don't want to do that. And finally, I decided to uh, to do that. And I, Cal Poly Fountain is such a wonderful fit for my philosophy of education and the approach. So, um, yeah. So I'm 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 pleased. But I I commend you and and the great team you have. And you know you got part of my team over here too. Yes. Um, and but you are. You know, these are the kinds of things that I think bring, as large as you are, these are the kinds of things that help create the intersection of communities. So I commend, commend you for this. Well, 
I would have done it without the microphones, but I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad someone caught it. Uh, yeah. Awesome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, you, you said um, you wouldn't be a president without Cal State Fullerton. Well, Cal State Fullerton wouldn't be what it is without yeah. without the 20 years that you, you spent here. So yeah. thank you. And thank you and for coming back. now we got Ronnie. Yeah. That's got, you got yeah. Ronnie. And no, I enjoyed Fullerton. I learned so much and it allowed me to be engaged in a way. I was, In fact, I was president of Black Faculty and Staff when I was here at Fullerton and uh, Jewel was just, Jewel and Mary Kay were just tremendous supporters of my uh, my development. And that's where I think we, we do, you know, we've, we've flown that path so we know where the bumps are. And so we tell them, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have this challenge but you can get on the other side. And we got to keep paying it forward, too. Yeah. Yeah. No. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, President Coley. Thank you. Amazing conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Fram and Friends, a collaboration between Titan Radio and Cal State Fullerton. For more episodes like the one you just heard, visit titanradio.org. 